Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul and Timotheus, or Timothy, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we ask you just to unpack for us this morning these first two verses, just two short little verses that will speak to us today, we pray. We ask that we would learn something from them and that you would would teach us things from your word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Maybe some of us are even surprised that I just chose two short little verses. Maybe you're hoping that if I just chose two short verses that I'll just speak for a short amount of time. Uh, But right here in the beginning, Paul doesn't waste any words. And I wanted to begin here and maybe emphasize this for the very reason my introduction was related to, that these are letters. This is a letter that Paul's written to a real church in a real time and place where Paul's speaking to them and he has instructions for these people in this place. Paul and Timothy, uh, fellow laborers together. He refers to them as servants of Jesus Christ. And they're writing to the saints. Servants and saints. Now, the word that's translated here, servants, is the same word that's used throughout the New Testament um, as servants. It's the word doulos or dulio. And um, whenever you and I think of the word servant, uh, we don't think of what Paul means when he says servants. It's actually the word that would be better translated probably slave or bond slave, bond servant. Uh, it's the word for someone who is owned by somebody else. They, they're, they're, um, they don't belong to themselves. They belong to the, this person. They have a master that controls their lives, that owns them, and that rules them and, and rules over them. And Paul's writing to the saints in Philippi. And the two things that, that struck me immediately as I was studying and reading this passage is that I believe there is deep truth that's here in this passage for us in the way it relates to authority and identity. Those are the two themes that, that I want to draw out of these passages here. Authority and identity. These are hot-button topics today, aren't they? power and identity. I could hardly choose more, uh, choose two topics that are more relevant to the world that we live in. We live in a world of postmodernism that's deconstructed all claims to authority and now is insisting that power is used to exploit others. Power is wrong. It's bad. And, uh, and so authority is inherently re- needs to be questioned and even undermined because it's a tool used by oppressors to make victims out of other people. And identity is something that you have to claim for yourself, and it's a job you take on. Identity is is something that you have to work on. You you have to, in the postmodern mindset, I'm saying, identity is something that needs constant maintenance and effort um, because my identity is not something that's given. My identity is something I create. And as we all know, creativity takes a lot of work, making something out of Nothing or out of raw materials is really difficult. But Paul, I believe in this opening, these two opening verses, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul drives at the heart of those modern myths that authority is used to exploit and that identity has to be self-created right here in the opening of Philippians. And I believe that the truths that Paul is unpacking or beginning to explore in these first two verses are related to the deep and profound joy and happiness in the church at Philippi. 
The first one is about authority. Now, we should be a little surprised. We're not because we read Scripture and oftentimes, um, maybe I'm the only person that can tend to fall into this where I read something. I've read the Bible many, many times. I've read the Bible repeatedly. And, and sections of Scripture, especially in the New Testament, I've read over and over again. And so the words, the phrases, the way it's expressed is extremely familiar to me. So when Paul says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ to all the saints, I'm like, oh yeah, this is the Bible. I'm reading the King James. I'm very used to these passages. Now I need to get on to the important stuff that he's going to talk about later. But right here in the beginning, it should be a little surprising to us that the man who founded and started this church, we find the, the birth story of this church in Acts chapter 16, that Paul, as the leader of this church, at a distance, the apostle who founded it, would refer to himself as a slave. Because slave was not a person with, with uh, authority and power and, and influence. A slave was the lowest on the socioeconomic ladder of the ancient Roman Empire. Slaves had very little rights or authorities uh, or they had their responsibilities, but no authority. And Paul here refers to himself as a slave. He doesn't write what we would write today. If you were starting, if you were the apostle of the church at Philippi, you had started the church, you'd founded the church, would you begin the letter by saying, uh, Martin, a slave of Jesus, to the church? Or would you start by saying, Martin, the leader of the church, the authority of the church, the apostle of the church of Philippi? Um, later on, he refers to himself as having authority. He says, you all obey me. Whatever I ask you to do, you do it. And I'm thankful for that. That's what you should do. There's this strange, to me, it's almost a, in a sense a tension, a conflict here, because Paul's referring to himself as a slave, as somebody that doesn't have any authority or power, or somebody who's owned by someone else. And what we see here is just a beautiful expression of servant-hearted leadership. Paul says of himself that, that he, he is, uh, even though he's a man of authority and power, he's an apostle, he doesn't use his authority to exploit other people, but instead he uses his authority to guard and to nurture the flock of God. And that's the model of servant-hearted leadership that Jesus calls us to. Whatever realm of influence that God has given you, power is not bad in and of itself. In fact, power is inevitable. There's always a dynamic of influence and power in, in the society as it exists today. And the cure for toxic authority and leadership gone wrong is not to remove leadership completely and not to undermine authority completely, but instead to have a godly model of authority and leadership and what we see here is that Paul does not couch his identity in terms of his authority. Do you see what I'm, this is what I mean. Paul does not say, I am the pastor. Instead, he says his identity, he's a slave. He says, I'm, I'm a servant. He's primarily a member of this body. And in fact, it goes on at the end of that to say with the bishops and the deacons. He's describing the authority structure of the church. And what he's pointing out is that these people's identity does not flow out of their leadership. No, 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 no. Primarily, they're a part of the body of Christ. That their authority is simply a function within the body. 
Now, that may be a little hard for us to understand, or maybe I, I expressed it in such a way that your mind is kind of going, what, what do we mean by saying identity, function? This is what I mean. Uh, we're very familiar with a stereotype in our culture today of the manager. Uh, in fact, one of my favorite comic strips that I follow pretty closely is Dilbert. And some of you have been privileged to receive those comics from me, because sometimes I'll really get a chuckle out of them. And the comic strip, if, if you're familiar with it, the comic strip is set in an office context. They all work in their little cubicles. And, uh, and it, it uses that stereotype of a boss and then these people, these underlings that work under them. But the interesting thing about the boss in, in the Dilbert comics is that boss is his title and identity that he clings to very firmly. But it doesn't flow out of his function. This is what I mean. The boss is incredibly incompetent. He has no clue what he's doing. He's doing his best to thwart any effort by his underlings to actually accomplish anything. But his identity becomes so wrapped up in his authority that there's no way he's ever going to surrender that authority. And that's, that's a recurring joke in the comic strip, is an authority that has no clue what they're doing. They're in essence, a dysfunctional authority. He's the opposite of servant-hearted leadership. Do you see what I'm saying? Because in, this, in the Dilbert comic, the Dilbert world, that unfortunately mirrors all too closely our own world, the boss isn't good at anything except just calling himself the boss. He's not actually moving the company forward. He's not helping his employees. He's not aiding in communication. He's incredibly ignorant of everything that needs to be done. Anything that gets accomplished gets accomplished in spite of his incompetence. And he's not about ready to stoop to do any menial labor whatsoever because he's the boss. But see, Jesus' picture for us is the exact opposite. What Jesus demonstrates for us is a leadership that the function, instead of simply being a title slapped on someone that doesn't get anything done, instead... The title isn't that important. What's important is our function inside the body. Do you know, it was only about 500 years ago that, that uh, medical technology began to reach into the human, into the human body, to understand the roles and functions of the various organs. That they began to, to practice dissection in ways that helped them understand the ways our bodies worked. But do you know, our bodies have been working like that for a lot longer than 500 years. The role, the function that our heart plays, it's not that our heart just started pumping blood through our body when it got the label heart. The first time that someone cut open uh, a a body and and saw the human heart and, and put a label on it and said, this is the heart, that wasn't the first time that the human heart had pumped because without any label, Without any, without, any, uh, without any title, the heart had been doing its job for a very, very long time because God had created it to fit in that function. But its primary function, see, the heart just can't be removed from the body and said, well, here is a heart and we can just stick it in anybody. We've tried to do that as medical technology has progressed and it's a really delicate operation. Why? Because the body is a whole a whole organism that's designed to work together. And in that same way, God gives us leaders and and organs within the body of Christ, members, the scripture calls them, 
that are designed to work together, and they're not replaceable. And that should give you some comfort. And it fits in with the second half of this verse when Paul refers to their identity as saints of God. Because what Paul is saying here is, my authority is not, is not the thing that I'm vested in. That if somebody begins to question or doubt my authority, that it just undermines my whole identity. No, because it's simply the function that God has skilled me to exercise within the body of Christ. Every single one of you here this morning have been given a, a definite set of skills and gifts that God has given, not to bless yourself, not to put yourself forward, but instead to bless the body. And when Paul goes on to refer to the church here in Philippi as the saints of Christ Jesus, once again, I I said to you earlier that servants maybe wouldn't be the best word to refer to because servants in our minds means somebody that's maybe a menial laborer, laborer, but they belong to themselves. They're just a servant. Uh, So they're low, but not as low as slave. It's a whole different mental category. When we think of saints, we think of people uh, that have been chosen by the church and elevated to some uh, rarefied uh, elevation. Like they're just like, they're saints. And we would say they are called saints because they have worked so hard to make themselves very holy. Are you with me? Do you follow me? But that isn't the way Paul is using this word. In fact, he's taking an Old Testament word and he's repurposing it because the Old Testament, the children of Israel were referred to as saints in various places. The book of Daniel refers to the the elect people of God repeatedly as saints. So maybe a better way to, to put this is that Paul says, Paul, a servant of King Jesus to the chosen people of God in King Jesus which are at Philippi. So he's speaking to the people of God in a particular place and to their leadership. So this is what I want you to see. These people have an identity that's been given to them that now they're asked to live it out. Do you know that you're not a believer or a saint because you live a particular way? You're not, uh, since, since you live so good, since you don't smoke and you don't drink, and you don't do those kinds of things, then you're a saint. And you're not trying to achieve sainthood. And you should be thankful for that. You should be grateful that you're not trying to work to achieve sainthood because that would be exhausting. Instead, our identity as the people of God is something that's been given to us. We don't have to work to accomplish it. We don't have to work to get there. Instead, What we're supposed to do, what Paul says again and again is that our transformed behavior and lifestyle is actually a function of the identity that's been given to us. We don't have to create our identity. We don't have to defend our identity. It's been given to us. This is so important. This really is the core of the gospel. And sometimes we shy away from it because there are people that take that understanding that we are the people of God because of what God has done for us and not what we have done. And they take it to mean that it, it doesn't matter at all the way you live. All you need to do is, if God has called you, if he's elected you, then, you know, then that's what matters. Like, you have nothing to do with it. But we actually teach that you can participate with the divine grace that's called you 
and that's brought you to life spiritually, that we participate with it or we reject it. But regardless, the fact is that the call has come from God, not from us. All the way through the Old Testament and on into the New Testament, there is a truth that's reiterated again and again and again, and it's this. It's that we as humans don't come looking for God. And somehow, by our spiritual sensitivity or our moral superiority or our, uh, our work ethic, our striving and spiritual effort, we don't somehow make our way to God, that God comes and finds us. Scripture describes us as people that are profoundly alienated from God, running from God, and God has chased us down and found us. I want to tell you something incredibly beautiful. If you are part of God's people, it is because God has chosen you. God has brought you into his family. God has united you with Christ. And it's not a function of something you've accomplished. It is what God has done in you. It's because you've been grafted into Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that people that aren't in Jesus just haven't been chosen. Or what, what it does mean is that you can in one sense rest in the grace of God and enjoy that, that conferred identity. Do you see what I'm saying? It's not something that has to be defended. It's not something that... It, I, I always find it fascinating that the, the myth of the self-made man means that we constantly have to defend what we've created. Um, I was thinking as, as I was sitting there talking to a lawyer just a couple of weeks ago, and he, he mentioned that he said whenever he's talking to certain types of people, they always have to drop their resume. He said he was talking to the one lady, and he said, oh, you work for such and such company? And she said, I'm the executive director. Do you hear that? You know why she has to do that? Because she wants to make sure that you know she accomplished something. And some of us can take Christian as a label in that same way. Oh, I'm, I'm a Christian. Wear the label with pride. Absolutely. But remember, you're a Christian not because of something you've done or because of something you've accomplished, or because you've reached some level of spiritual superiority, but you're a Christian because when you were dead in trespasses and sins and you were alienated from God, that God reached down and saved you. He rescued you, and he made you part of the people of God. And that's an identity that's been given to us. We can treasure it. We can, we can hold it with gratitude, but we remember that it's not been something that we had to work to get to, but it's something that God has given us. And that is reason to rejoice. It's also reason to relax. It's, it's also a reason to stop boasting. We don't boast. When I say wear with pride, I mean in the sense that when the world looks down on us, we say, no, we are the chosen people of God. God has chosen us to be his children. He's chosen us to be part of his family. Paul, over and over again, he emphasizes the fact that this body of believers that he's preaching to, He's writing this letter to. They've been given this conferred identity. Each one of them have these special functions that God has given them. But at no point does he talk to them about how they need to somehow accomplish what God has already done in them. Now, he's going to talk to them about areas that they participate with the divine grace later. But we always have to start with the call of God and the reality of God's choosing of us before we go any further. Because if we don't start there, we end up in the same cycle of striving that our culture is stuck in. And the danger there is that we live emotionally fragile 
and constantly struggling instead of resting in who God has created within us, who we are, our identity. I thought about it. Maybe I can illustrate it like this. I'm a dad. I'm a father. And I'm not a father because I act like a dad. I'm not a father because I'm a, I'm a father figure that, 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 that just reaches out to kids all the time and gives them nice things. I'm a dad. That's my identity. And it's because I have children. I've born children. And so I don't have to feel insecure if somebody would denigrate that, if somebody would look down on me, because it, it's who I am. It's, it's deep within me. And in fact, my fatherly behavior flows out of an event that's happened in my life. Three events, in fact. Three little children that my wife has born that are, they came from me, from us. My wife and I together had these three children that God has given us, my treasures. And because of that, I try very hard to act like a father. Paul, in his letters, he encourages the people. He says to them, you are saints. You're chosen of God. Now act like it. Now behave like you're the children of God. Not in, 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 uh, in fearful servility, like, oh, because I'm, I'm afraid of God because he's a terrible taskmaster. Paul begins by saying he's a slave. But the beautiful thing about his slavery is who he's a slave to. He says, Paul, really, if you develop his theology, this is what he says, everybody's a slave. Everyone's a slave. You're a slave, you're a slave. I, the one thing I know about us all here this morning, I know that you're all slaves. The only question is who you're a slave to. Are you a slave to sin or are you a slave to Jesus? Now, if you're a slave to sin, this is what we know about sin. Sin is not just a, um, it's not just a bad thing that we do. It's not just a, uh, a stumbling or a fault. Sin is a destructive moral influence that's intent on not only alienating from us, us from God, but from everything that's good and finally destroying us completely in the end taking away from us all joy, all pleasure, all happiness, all peace, and wrecking us. Jesus is the good master who loves us, who gave himself for us, who lays down his life for us, who longs only for whatever's best for us. Who would you rather serve? Who would you rather be a slave to? That's the roots of Paul's slavery. Paul says, I'm a slave. That's my identity. He says to them, he says, you, you all, you're, you're the children of God. You're the God's chosen people. That's your identity. And then he speaks to them of grace, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father. Now, this is the, the common opening. This, in, in old-fashioned Greek terms, this is his dear Philippian church. Now, when, when you and I write a letter and we start it, dear so-and-so, we don't really mean dear, do we? We're just saying dear. We don't mean... Now, if we want to say dear, what we say is dearest. And then that kind of puts it in a different framework. But dear, and then the recipient of the letter, is just the way we frame letters. When they would write a letter, they would write, they would start it with uh, greetings was the word. But the word is a homonym, or it's very close to the word for grace. So Paul changed the word, 
And where they would write it, uh, and I want to say it's chariots, but I don't, I don't have the word exactly right in my mind, but it, it means greetings. Or, or, uh, but Paul changed it to charis, which is the word for grace. And Paul is basically just putting the gospel right here in the greeting. He says, grace to you. What is the grace that God has given you? He's chosen you. He's made you part of his family. He's made you part of the people of God. And grace in, the, in Paul's theology, grace is the thing that God pours out on us. And the result of God's graciousness to us is peace in our lives. Peace is not something that we have to strive to accomplish or strive to achieve. Peace is the gift of God. It's the result of the gift of God that's given. The grace of God that's poured out on these people in this place. So this is what I say to you this morning. To God's chosen people in Chicago. And me, a servant of God. God has graciously given us his identity. He's made us his people. And as we put on that identity we find the peace that we're longing for. What are the things in your own life that are keeping you from peace? So often for us, it's the need to be in control, to be the one that's making the choices. So many things in our modern world allow us to choose. I choose. I choose my religion. I choose my job. I choose my spouse. I choose my family. In a way that would have made no sense just a few hundred years ago. It's amazing when you think that it's not been that long ago that arranged marriages weren't even unusual and that a person grew up, lived, and died in the religion that they had been born into, that my occupation would have been determined by my parents. I am intensely grateful for the freedom that I have, the freedom to choose so many things. But the danger, the grave danger, is that I decide that I'm in control. I'm in control of my destiny. I decide. I choose. But within that freedom of choice comes fear and turmoil turmoil and torment because I'm afraid that I'm not really big enough to choose on my own. And that's why there's such beauty when Paul says to them, you, God chose you. And God has given you gifts. Gifts aren't something that you have to beg for. Gifts, in this context, gifts are not just something you pick out. The gifts that the Holy Spirit confers on his church, he just gives them however he wishes. In his sovereignty, in his will. What does God want to give to us as a church and what do we have to let go of to find it? God wants to give us grace, but to get that grace, we have to let go of control. To open our hands and to say, God, you're the one that's in charge. My attempts at running my own life end in failure and desperation and fear and torment. But as I begin to pry open my strained fingers and loosen my white knuckles, what I find that you're wanting to give me, the reason why we don't hold on to control so deeply is because we're afraid. We're afraid of what might happen if we weren't in control. And God says, calm down. I'm in control. I'm in control. And if you will trust me, I have good gifts that I long to give to you. May God help us. Ask God. In your heart, say, Lord, how can I let go? How can I allow you to be more in control in my life? What are the things? One of the things that we must do is fill our mind with God's word. We must make positive steps to, to, to loosen our grip in ways that are unhealthy and allow God to be God and just to be us.
I thought in my own life, as I've tried to wrestle with, what does it mean to, to allow God to be in control? The scripture says that I should look ahead and plan and prepare for the future. So how do I resolve that with allowing God to be in control? And I believe it's like this. God, in his sovereign, gracious goodness and love, has given me things that I'm able to control. We looked at the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus speaks to them about their toxic control, about the way that their control is spiraled out of control. But there are still things that I can plan and prepare for. I get myself up in the morning. I set an alarm or not. But I I prepare myself. I work to achieve certain things. But you know that God in his sovereign goodness has given a whole, whole realm of things that are outside of my control. There are things I can't control. I can't do anything about. And when I begin to try to arrange those things that I can't control, that's when anxiety and frustration begins to build, fear and torment. Because what I'm trying to do is to control the things that only God can control. So as I begin to recognize his sovereign goodness and accept it for what it is, I begin to love him more deeply, trust him more fully, and I'm able to loosen my grip in ways that are healthy. I say, Lord, you're the one that chose me. Your authority is a gift that God has given me for the building up of the kingdom of God. And what God has made you to be is his gift to you. Treasure it, receive it, accept it. With open hands and thankful hearts, grace and peace from God that he's showering upon his church. Thanks be to God for his gift that he's given us. If I understand faith, it's not counting on me. It's the hope and assurance of what I can see. It's the daily relying on Jesus to be providing more grace faithfully. Further proving His great love for me. Grace for the moment, all that I need. Grace for the moment, and faith to receive the promises given to those who believe. Grace for the moment, all that I need. those who believe grace for